Chapter Thirty Four of the Morgesons. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Julia Lenarden. The Morgesons by Elizabeth Stoddard. Chapter Thirty Four. The house was thronged until after the funeral. We sat in state to be condoled with and waited upon. Not a jot of customary rites was abated, though I am sure the performers thereof had small encouragement. Veronica alone would see no one. Her room was the only one not invaded, for the neighbours took the house into their hands, assisted by that part of the Morgesons, who were too distantly related to consider themselves as mourners to be shut up with us. It was put under rigorous funeral law, and inspected from garret to cellar. They supervised all the arrangements. If there were any they did not make, received the guests who came from a distance, and aided their departure. Every child in Surrey was allowed to come in, to look at the dead, with the idle curiosity of childhood. Veronica knew nothing of this. Her course was taken for granted. Mine was imposed upon me. I remonstrated with temperance, but she replied that it was all well meant, and always done. I endured the same annoyances over and over again from relays of people. Bedtime especially was their occasion. I was not allowed to undress alone. I must have drinks, either to compose or stimulate. I must have something read to me. I must be watched when I slept, or I must be kept awake to give advice or to be told items of news. All the while, like a chorus, they reiterated the character, the peculiarities, the virtues of the mother I had lost, who could never be replaced, who was in a better world. However, I was, in a measure, kept from myself during this interval. The matter is often subservient to the manner. Arthur's feelings were played upon also. He wept often, confiding to me his grief and his plans for the future. "'If people would die at the age of seventy-seven, things would go well,' he said. "'For everybody must expect to die then. The Bible says so.' He informed me also that he expected to be an architect, and that mother liked it. He had an idea, which he had imparted to her, of an arch. It must be made of black marble with gold veins, and ought to stand in Egypt with the word pandemonium on it. The kitchen was the focus of interest to him, for meals were prepared at all hours for comers and goers. Temperance told me that the mild and indifferent mourners were fond of good victuals, and she thought their hearts were lighter than their stomachs when they went away. She presided there and wrangled with Fanny, who seemed to have lost her capacity for doing anything steadily, except, as Temperance said, where father was concerned. "'It's a pity she isn't his dog.' She might keep at his feet, then. I found her crying awfully yesterday, because he looked so grief-struck. Aunt Merce was engaged with the dressmaker, and with the orders for bonnets and veils. She discussed the subject of the morning with the Morgansons. I acquiesced in all her arrangements, for she derived a simple comfort from these external tokens. Veronica refused to wear the bonnet and veil, and the required bombazine. 
Bombazine made her flesh crawl. Why should she wear it? Mother hated it, too, for she had never worn out the garments made for Granther Warren. She's a bigger child than ever, Temperance remarked, and must have her way. Do you think the border on my cap is too deep? Aunt asked Merce, coming into my room dressed for the funeral. No. The cap is from Miss Nye in Milford. She says they wear them so. I could have made it myself for half the price. Shall you be ready soon? I'm going to put on my bonnet. The yard is full of carriages already. Somebody handed me gloves. My bonnet was tied, a handkerchief given to me, and the door opened. In the passage I heard a knocking from Veronica's room, and crossed to learn what she wanted. "'Is this like her?' she asked, showing me a drawing. "'How could you have done this?' "'Because I have tried. Is it like?' "'Yes, the idea.' But what a picture she had attempted to make! Mother's shadowy face serenely looked from a high, small window, set in clouds, like those which gather over the sun when it draws water. It was closely pressed to the glass, and she was regarding dark, indefinite creatures below it, which Veronica could either not or would not shape. Keep it, but don't work on it any more. And I put it away. She was wan and languid, but collected. "'I see you are ready. Somebody must bury the dead. Go. Will the house be empty?' "'Yes. Good. I can walk through it once more. The dead must be buried, that is certain. But why should it be certain that I must be the one to do it?' "'You think I can go through with it, then?' "'I have set your behaviour down to your will.' You might be right. Perhaps Mother was always right about me, too. She was against me. She looked at me with a timidity and an apprehension that made my heart bleed. I think we might kiss each other now, she said. I opened my arms, holding her against my breast so tightly that she drew back, but kissed my cheek gently, and took from her pocket a flasso of salts, which she fastened to my belt by its little chain and said again, Go! But recalling me, said, One more thing. I will never lose my temper with you again. The landing stair was full of people. I locked the door and took out the key. The stairs were crowded. All made way for me with a silent respect. Aunt Merce, when she saw me, put her hand on an empty chair beside Father, who sat by the coffin. Those passages in the Bible which contain the beautifully poetic images relating to the going of man to his long home were read, and to my ear they seemed to fall on the coffin in dull strife with its inmate, who mutely contradicted them. A discourse followed, which was calculated to harrow the feelings to the utmost. Arthur began to cry so nervously that some considerate friend took him out and Aunt Merce wept so violently that she grew faint and caught hold of me. I gave her the flasson of salts, which revived her, but I felt as father looked, stern and anxious to escape the unprofitable trial. As the coffin was taken out to the hearse, my heart twisted and palpitated, as if a command had been laid upon it to follow and not leave her. But I was imprisoned in the cage of life. The keeper would not let me go. 
her he had let loose. We were still obliged to sit an intolerable while till all present had passed before her for the last time. When the hearse moved down the street, father, Arthur, and I were called, and assisted in our own chaise, as if we were helpless. The reins were put in father's hands, and the horse was led behind the hearse. At last the word was given, and the long procession began to move through the street, which was deserted. A cat ran out of the house, and scampered across the way. Arthur laughed, and father jumped nervously at the sound of his laugh. The graveyard was a mile outside the village. A sandy plain, where a few stunted pines transplanted from the woods near it, struggled to keep alive. As we turned from the street into the lane which led to it, and rode up a little hill where the sand was so deep that it muffled the wheels and feet of the horses, the whole round of the grey sky was visible. It hung low over us. I wished it to drop and blot out the vague nothings under it. We left the carriage at the palings and walked up the narrow path, among the mounds, where every stone was marked Morganson. Some so old that they were stained with blotches of yellow moss, slanting backward and forward in protest against the folly of indicating what was no longer beneath them. The mounds were covered with mats of scanty, tangled grass, and here and there a rank spot of green. I was tracing the shapes of one of those green patches when I felt father's arm tremble. I shut my eyes, but could not close my ears to the sound of the spadeful of sand which fell on the coffin. It was over. We must leave her to the creatures Veronica had seen. I looked upward to discern the shadowy reflection behind the grey haze of cloud where she might have paused a moment on her eternal journey to the eternal world of souls. It was the custom, and father took his hat off to thank his friends for their sympathy and attention. His lips moved, but no words were audible. The procession moved down the path again. Arthur's hand was in mine. He stamped his feet firmly on the sand, as if to break the oppressive silence which no one seemed disposed to disturb. The same ceremonies were performed in starting us homeward by the same person, who let go the reins and lifted his hat as we passed, as the final token of attention and respect. The windows were open. A wind was blowing through the house. The furniture was set in order, the doors were thrown back, and not a soul was there when we went in. The duties of friendship and tradition had been fulfilled. The neighbors had gone home to their avocations. For the public, the tragedy was over. All speculation on the degree of our grief or our indifference was settled. We could take off our mourning garments and our mourning countenance, now that we were alone. Or we could give way to that anguish we were afraid and ashamed to show, except before the one above human emotion. End of chapter 34